and then um, struggled with that to the point that he almost committed suicide, and then got a friend, I think it was a lady friend, right? Came out of it, and then she passed, and he slipped back into depression and remained that way until he died. And I was just sitting there imagining what life would have been like as, as William Cooper and what he would have been thinking when he wrote that song and in the midst of all of that depression and other things to the point that he would even, he would even despise his, his own life. And yet, here today, churches all over the world are singing his song, the song that God used him to write. It is the, it's a really good picture, illustration of what we're doing at the moment. The seed that we're putting in the ground um, and, and the difference in the harvest that's way out there in the future. There's a lot of things that we do in life, whether it's as a mother tending to little ones, whether it's as a, a pastor tending to a flock, whether it's as an individual witnessing to, to a co-worker, or a husband to a wife, or a wife to a husband, that, that it gets wearying, and it can get very discouraging, and it can even become depressing. And yet, you're not to base your faithfulness on what you see in the moment, but base your faithfulness on the promise that God has made, which will come out there in the future. And William Cooper is a perfect example of that. And the parable that we have this morning, uh, Clay read for us, we read together, is about planting a garden. It's, it's the parable of the soils. And you need three things when you plant a garden. You need seed, you need soil, and then you need a gardener. You need somebody to stick it in the ground. And if any of that's wrong, if there's a problem with the seed, if there's a problem with the soil, or you don't have a sower, you don't have a gardener, then the garden's not, not going to grow. Of course, you need some other things, but those aren't the topics of Jesus' parable this morning. Mark chapter 4 starts the largest section of, of teaching that Jesus gives in the, in the gospel yet. And it actually enters into uh, three parables. And all the parables are about how the kingdom grows. There's the parable of the soils that we're going to look at this morning. Then there's the, the, the discussion about how a seed grows. And then there's the more familiar one about the mustard seed. Each of those parables, this, this section of teaching that Jesus gives, is focused on sowing and growth and the harvest. And it's all meant to, to instruct the disciples on how the kingdom of God is, is working. And so... Up to this point, Mark's been describing Jesus. Here he is. He, he comes on the scene. He goes to the wilderness. He's baptized by John. The Spirit descends on him. He comes back to Galilee. He starts his ministry. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's casting out demons. He's doing these miraculous works. He calls his 12 disciples. It's all about the, the ministry of Jesus and how he's preaching and the response that the preaching of Jesus Evoked. How are people responding to Jesus? He's preaching and how people are, are responding. And understandably, I mean, we just got done through the, through the section where Jesus' family thinks he's deranged. The religious leaders in Capernaum have rejected him. They send up the expert scribes from, from Jerusalem and they say he's demon possessed. 
And understandably, your 12 disciples with Jesus, you're a little bit perplexed about the mixed results. I mean, here is the, here's the Messiah. The crowds were huge. Jesus is the greatest spectacle in Israel. I mean, Israel was looking for the Messiah, and Jesus is doing things that the Messiah was supposed to do, miraculous things. Never in history had there been a miracle worker like this. Demons fled whenever he came into their presence. They blew their cover. Crowds came for healing, and they got it. They came for bread, and they, and they got it. His teaching was unmistakably superior to anything that anybody had ever heard. They, the, even the people, even unbelievers said, never has a man spoken like this. He speaks with authority. His life was, was impeccably perfect. He never did anything wrong. But the disciples that were genuinely following Jesus were small in number. Why? Why so few converts? Why such opposition from, from Israel who had a messianic expectation? Why didn't more people respond in faith to the proclamation of the word? And the disciples struggled that their number was small. And the conversions were few, even though the crowds were great. Why did Jesus only have 12 disciples and a few other believers when he did all these things? They couldn't understand why Jesus was fulfilling all the messianic prophecies and more people weren't embracing him. I mean, that's a logical question, isn't it? Don't we ask that question? Those of you who tasted the goodness of the Lord, why would anyone want to neglect so great a salvation and go to hell? I mean, we ask the same question. And put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They followed him, and he's doing everything he's supposed to do. They've embraced him, and everybody else is showing up for the, for the show and, and for the bread. Even at the end of Christ's ministry, after the resurrection... There's only a record of 500 that were gathered in Galilee and 120 in Jerusalem after three years of ministry. He has 500 that see him risen from the dead in Galilee, and that could have included the 120 from Jerusalem. And not only that, he'd been rejected by the religious establishment. His family concluded he was deranged, tried to take him by force to stop his preaching. The Sanhedrin experts showed up, and the crowds were... We're wanting only the benefits. And Jesus has this little flock. Jesus even calls them his little flock, doesn't he? He tells them in the Sermon on the Mount, enter through the narrow gate in the narrow way. And there would be few that would go that way. Now, does that bust your bubble? I mean, are you thinking like, okay, Jesus is on the scene and everybody's going to flock to him. Does that kill your zeal somehow to serve the Lord? If so, you're not alone, because that's what the disciples were tempted to do. They had the same problem. In fact, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in the 13th chapter, one of the disciples, probably on behalf of the rest of the disciples, come to Jesus, troubled by so few conversions, and they say, Lord, there are just a few being saved. I mean, it's just going to be a few of us. They're going to enter in the kingdom. And we believe, but nobody else is believing. That's Luke 13, 23. And Jesus said to them, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
One writer said it was hard for them to understand because once they'd tasted Jesus Christ and their faith had taken root and become the real thing, they had entered into the kingdom of God. And Christ became all the more wonderful, all the more wondrous, all the more glorious, all the more lovely, all the more attractive. And by the end of John 6, when some of the superficial followers of Christ walk away, Jesus says to the disciples, will you go away also? I mean, he even attracted followers that only walked with him for a short period of time and then leave, then left. Out of that small number that's there. He's even losing people that he gains. So much so that Jesus, knowing the heart of the disciples, turns to them and says, will you go away also? Do you remember what they said? Where, where are we going to go? <laughs> you alone have the words of eternal life. I mean, they understood who Jesus was. There's no place else to go. Well, Jesus teaches this parable and then explains to his disciples. And in this parable, he answers the question and explains why there are so few disciples following him at this point. And he says the issue is not the seed and it's not the sower, it's the soil. He also says his disciples have to grasp this parable, how the kingdom is going to come, how it's unfolding, how it's going to grow, their role in it. If they don't understand this parable, then they're not going to understand any of the other parables. They're, they're going to miss the teaching on the kingdom of God. So he says in verse 13, look at Mark, Mark 4, 13. He says, do you, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If they mess this one up, they're, they're not going to get the rest. In this passage, Jesus declares the reason that he speaks in parables to the crowds and why he reveals it to his disciples, those who have embraced him by faith. It was because of greater grace and greater judgment. This passage has three parts, verses Mark chapter 4. If you're not there, Mark 4. It has the parable of the soil from verse 1 through 9. That's the parable in nine verses. Then you have this, this description about the purpose of parables in general in verse 10 through 12. And then you have the Lord himself explain his own parable in verses 13 through 20. So you really should think about this in, in two parts. There's the parable, the teaching that he gives to the crowds. There's this hinge in between of why he teaches in parables at any place. And then there's the explanation that, that Jesus, Jesus gives. And the parable is is to answer the question of why so few people are responding to Christ and the differing responses to the Word. And he tells the disciples to be confident sowers and preach on, the harvest will come. When Jesus explains the parable, the focus changes. We're, we're only going to cover the first part today. When Jesus explains the parable to the disciples, he tells them what they should do in light of the different responses to the word. Why is there a different response? That's what the purpose of the parable is. What you should do in light of the fact that there are different responses to the gospel is the explanation. And the bridge in between is, is general teaching on, on parables. So here would be the theme, the lesson on responding to Jesus. 
There's the bad soils, taught in verses 1 through 7. Very familiar with this parable, I'm sure. There's the good soil in verses 8 and 9. Then there's the purpose of parables in verses 10 through 12. And then there's the explanation of the parable in verses 13 through through 20. Let's look at the passage and let's begin with the the bad soils. I'll give you what at Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is now teaching by the sea. It says, He began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to Him, so that He could not... So He had to get into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. So... Jesus, back in chapter 3, verse 8, tells his disciples to prepare a boat because the crowds are pressing him, and they're pressing him so much that they press him right up to the edge of the water. And they're trying to, to get whatever they can get from him, to touch him. So he gets in a boat, and he casts out from the, the bank. A little, I can see it plain as day. I can see the, the, the Sea of Galilee there. I can see what that boat would have looked like. And Jesus goes and sits in the boat, and here's the crowd like if you're the water, the boat's out there, the crowd is here. And it's like a natural amphitheater. He's speaking, his voice is echoing off the water, and more people could, could hear him. And it puts distance between him and the crushing crowd. And, and then he begins to, to teach. Look at verse 3. Listen, behold, is how he starts this, this parable. There are two commands, back to back. This doesn't happen anywhere else in Mark. And it never happens when Jesus introduces any other parables. I mean, this is a, this is, listen, listen to what I'm getting ready to tell you. Behold, it's a, that when they're placed together, it intensifies the importance of, of heeding what he's getting ready to say. This parable is significant. It's not just one of many parables. This is like a super parable. Couple that with Jesus telling his disciples, if you don't understand this parable, you're not going to understand the rest of my teaching, and it's a recipe to pay attention. And so Jesus begins, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed. That's what he says. Maybe he said that as he looked out onto the fields. Maybe people were sowing around Jesus and the disciples. It would have been going on all over the place in Galilee. Now, I want you to notice, hopefully you noticed, after that statement, a sower went out to sow, and it happened that he sowed, that that's the last that you hear about the sower. The rest is all about the soils and what happens with the, with the seed, what the seed does in the soils. The soils take center stage, and the yield from the seed in the good ground is at the very end of the parable, which is the emphasis. Look at verse 8. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up and increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. That's why this is better to be called the parable of the soils rather than the parable of the sower. Because the sower is there, but the focus of the parable is about the soil. And he shows us three bad soils. There's the footpath or hardened soil in verse there's the rocky or shallow soil, the stony ground in verse 5. There's the thorny 
or mingled soil in verse 7. And the description is exactly the same for all three of these bad soils. The seed fell, and then it came, and the birds came and devoured. The seed fell, it sprang up and was scorched. The seeds fell, it grew up, and it was choked. Let's look at this first one that Jesus describes. He begins with the hardened soil. Some seed fell by the wayside in verse 4, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. You understand this. It's just like in gardens today. There's a footpath that's usually between the rows. You have your corn over here, and you have your tomatoes over here, and there's the place where you walk between in the middle. And you don't sow anything there, and you continually walk there when you go into water the garden or fertilize it or do whatever, and it gets very hard. You don't plow that part. And nothing grows there. It's well-worn. It's packed from traffic. It's not the best place to grow anything because the ground's hard. Now, you may not realize this, but in Palestine, they did it the opposite. They sowed the seed first, and then they plowed the ground. Well, that's kind of weird. I mean, we plow and then we sow. They sow and then they they plow. And some of the seed that was broadcast or was sowed fell on the footpath, fell on the path that was never going to be plowed. This ground doesn't get plowed, so the seed remains on top of the baked earth and the birds come and pick the seed. You've seen that happen in your own garden. Sometimes the birds will come and dig through the, dig through the ground that's there and pick the seed out of it. But this ground doesn't get plowed when the seed lays on top of the earth. And the point is the seed has no opportunity to take any root because of the hardness of the soil. You see that? Fell by the wayside. Fell on the footpath. And the soil would have to be plowed before anything that could be done. You ever shared the gospel with somebody? And they seem like they have no interest in it whatsoever. They're just absolutely indifferent to Christ. It's a person whose heart has this kind of soil. Before any work can be done, God's going to have to plow their heart. I was that way at one point. I didn't want to hear anything to do with Jesus. Didn't want anything to do with church. I heard the gospel. I come into church. I would sit there. I would hear a passionate sermon. I would see somebody weep over the reality of hell and all of those things. And I would walk right out the door and it would not affect me in any way, shape, or form. Was it the preacher's fault? Was it the, the gospel's fault? What was happening? That seed was being cast, but it was falling on very, very stony or, or very, very, uh, packed ground, and, and that seed could not work down into, into the heart. It's a very dangerous fee, uh, condition. There's no feeling. There's no receptivity. People are indifferent. I can remember sharing the gospel with a man one time that was close to death. I mean, he's close to death. He's got, he's got cancer, and he's going to die. He didn't care. He didn't, wanna, didn't want anything to do with the gospel. Totally indifferent. Beware of the hardened heart, the heart that won't take seed. You sit under the Word and it doesn't penetrate. You probably need to plead that God would plow the ground so the seed could take root. That's bad ground, bad soil. Look at the next one. There's this shallow soil. Look at verse 5. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, 
And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth. This uh, is, is, is soil that's usually called the stony ground. It's, it's not soil that had rocks in it like we think. Like we go through the garden, we pick out the rocks, we throw out the rocks so we, we, can, we can have a garden. The ground in, in, in Israel has a thin layer. There will be a thin layer over a limestone uh, base. There will be rocks underneath. They couldn't see the rocks. They wouldn't find the rocks till they would till they would even would even plow. The rabbis used to joke that there's so many so many rocks in in Israel that when God was making the earth, He accidentally dropped a bucket of rocks, uh, you know, over Palestine. And, and, and because this rock is underground, the seed would be sown and the the plant would take root. So you get this thin layer of dirt over top of a rock. The plant would take root. And the roots wouldn't be able to go deep enough in order to, for the plant to survive. And it would also spring up quickly. Have you ever planted corn too deep in the ground? You know, it doesn't, it's not just how far apart you plant it, but how deep you plant it. The deeper that you plant it, the deeper the roots, but also the longer it takes to, to spring up. So here is seed that was sown in very shallow ground. It immediately springs up, but the roots can't go down, and so, when the sun came, it was scorched, in verse 6, because it had no root. Shallow roots and a high plant. Shows outward growth, but no inward depth. Inward depth. It's, a, it's an impressive show. It would grow quicker than all the other seeds. But inadequate roots. It's initial success, but subsequent failure. It didn't send the root down into the earth, so it does not send up an ear toward the heavens. And the plant in the end dies in the heat. Some people that listened to Jesus heard the gospel, and they had an immediate outward response. But that's not the whole story, and that's not the whole plant. Because the plant here doesn't remain or bear fruit. It's not the initial response that's the main thing that proves salvation. It's the plant remaining and bearing fruit. Oh, you have to have an initial response. You're not going to come to Christ. You're not going to get to heaven unless you respond to Jesus. But that's not the proof. It's that you remain and that you bear fruit. Jesus said, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. Look at the mingled Soil. And verse 7. And some th- seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. This is a third seed cast on ground, and once it's plowed, it's mingled with some thorns that are already there, and all that's mixed up together, and then... Both seeds come up, and they grow up together, and the thorn bushes steal the nutrients from the good seed. And because of that, the seed doesn't bear fruit. Have you ever planted a garden, and then you never did anything else to it again? What happens to it? Weeds get in it, right? Here, the thorns are there, and it makes smaller produce. It choked out. The good seed, so that it does not bear harvest. The word means it produced no grain. 
The plant doesn't just die. It doesn't produce. It comes up. It's got a root system. But there's no grain. It's unable because of competition for light and nourishment, which Jesus describes as the world. I think this is probably one of the most fearful of the three. Because it shows a person receiving the Word of God, a plant or an outward response is produced, there's a stalk, the roots go down, but then as they live, worldliness grows alongside outer godliness, and real godliness is not able to be produced, and so it was never real to begin with. I mean, the scary thing is Jesus is not saying this is a fruitless Christian. He's saying that a Christian person who professes to be a Christian that bears no fruit is not a Christian at all. I mean, that's the point here. This is bad soil. The farmer's not looking for plants. I mean, you wouldn't be satisfied if you were a gardener and you planted a corn plant and all you got was a plant. You'd want ears, right? (laughs) What is good? What good is a grain stalk that has no grain? Did you ever notice that there's a progression in these first three seeds? The first one never started. It never germinated. The second started, but it died. It germinates, but dies shortly after. The third survives, but can't produce any kind of grain. It germinates, but at harvest time, bears no fruit. And in the end, all three of those are of no value to the farmer, since he's looking for grain. I mean, that's why he's planting. But, look at verse 8. The fourth seed germinates, grows, and bears much fruit at harvest time. The contrast here of the good soil. There's a description of the good soil. There's what the soil yields. And then there's the sower's warning. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice verse 8 starts with but. But the other seed fell on good ground. It's a contrast. What he's getting ready to say is different from the bad soils. The seed that didn't germinate, the seed that germinated and started to grow but died, the seed that grew but never produced anything. There's a contrast. But but some seed fell on good ground. He describes what that looks like. The seed fell, meaning it was received. The crop grew. And fruit remained, it increased, it produced. That's how he describes good ground that receives good seed. And the good soil was the disciples, that small little flock that heard Jesus' message, acted on Jesus' message, they received the word, and they remained. They're continuing to follow him, and they will ultimately bear fruit. That's what a genuine convert looks like. It's a person who responds to the gospel. Someone who receives, hears it, receives it, and then he remains. And they bear fruit. And you say, wow, do I have enough fruit? He's not talking about how much fruit. I want you to notice that there are three different yields. So you may be looking at another Christian going, wow, they are producing super abundantly, and I've just got this itty-bitty little grape here. 
Well, if you've got an itty-bitty little grape, that means that you are saved. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive for the superabundant. But if you have no grape, not even a raisin, you've got a problem. <laughs> they hear the gospel, they receive what is said, and they continue to follow Christ. Look at the yield. Verse 8. Some fell, it yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirty-fold, some sixty and some hundred. Now, there is some discussion about whether you should calculate this math with the bad soil. But the normal yield for a seed was about eight to one or ten to one. If that was a good harvest. And so this is some thirty, some sixty, some hundred. This is significant results. This is... Supernatural results. And there's something else interesting. The verbs that are used here denote continuous growth. This is what a true convert looks like. The seed falls on the ground. They receive the seed. They continue. They bear fruit. And their fruit is amazing produce. And they continue to bear it. Yet today... There are churches and even evangelistic approaches that focus on making a better mousetrap to get results. Say this, pray this, and poof, you're in the kingdom. Now think about why Jesus is teaching this parable. Think about it, back to the beginning. The disciples are asking the question, why so few converts... When there are so great crowds. Why all the crowds? And why does Jesus have twelve disciples and a few other believers? When he is doing miraculous things and he's the one doing the preaching. Now let me ask you a question. Or the church growth people, because I'm I know they're not in here. If those were the results of Jesus Christ who was performing miracles and he was the preacher. Why do you think that you would have better results than the Lord if you were more clever? I mean, think about how ridiculous that is. Why do we think with cleverness or cultural clarity or a system of apologetics that we would gather more genuine converts than the Lord Himself? Surely if there was ever a preacher that was able to know what to do with a crowd, it would have been God Himself. And there are actually people that think that if the sower is clever enough or culturally savvy enough, he can overcome the resistance of the human heart almost like a consumer and bring about mass conversions. Jesus ever give the remedy? Yeah, it's coming. It's coming in the next sermon. Why does Jesus share this? He shares this parable to teach his disciples that the kingdom has come. And despite the setbacks and despite the lack of response to Christ's message and despite that there's only a few converts, the seed will be victorious. I mean, that's the emphasis. Some 30, some 60, and some 100. And those 12 turn into 500 and 120, and those turn into several thousand 
And there are millions upon millions today. And when the earthly kingdom comes, then you're going to see the real results of the harvest. The seed that he will sow and the disciples after him, the seed that we sow today, which is the gospel, will fall on good soil. It will take root. It will bring forth grain. It will be a harvest. And so we should be reminded of the same today. Let me leave you with these takeaways. You should remember, you should take away from this parable that when you share the gospel, it will fall on various types of soils. Now, let me say this. If you're not sharing the gospel, get your sanctified backside out of your laziness and share Jesus with somebody. Seriously. If you are, then understand that it's going to fall on various types of soils. And yet, victorious nonetheless, because when you cast the seed, it will find good soil and it will bear good fruit. It may have to be plowed by the Holy Spirit before it bears. But plowing comes after sowing. So we throw the seed. Second, we should not doubt the Lord or the Word... We don't see people flocking to Christ. Now, again, if we're being lazy, then the problem is we're not sowing seed. (laughs) But Jesus is obviously sowing seed here. We should not doubt the Lord or the Word when we don't see people flocking to Christ. If Jesus had the results He did, we shouldn't be disappointed with the results that we have. We should not question the seed or the sower or look for a better mousetrap. We should be faithful to the truth and share it. And finally, number three, we should rejoice and continue to proclaim the good news since we know that there is good seed out there. Our task is to sow and look for the harvest of God. How many times have I heard Richard Jett say that to encourage me when I would be discouraged about sharing with someone burdened over their soul? say, Pastor, did you share Jesus with them? Yeah. Did you do it clearly? Yeah. Did you leave anything out? Yeah. No, I didn't. Then that's God's business. You did your business. Thank you, Brother Richard.